The world is filled with perplexing questions. Let me just share a few with you this morning as we get started. For example, why do you have to put your two cents in, uh, but it's a penny for your thoughts? Where's that extra penny going? What disease did cured ham actually have? Why is it that people say they slept like a baby when babies wake up like every two hours? <laughs> if Jimmy cracks corn and no one cares, why is there a stupid song about him? If the professor in Gilligan's Island can make a radio out of a coconut, why can't he fix a hole in a boat? <laughs> Often wondered that. Why does Superman stop bullets with his chest, but ducks when you throw a revolver at him? And I really want to know how many of you can answer this one. Why do people keep running over a string a dozen times with their vacuum cleaner, then reach down, pick it up, examine it, and then put it down to give the vacuum one more chance? <laughs> right? Perplexing questions. Here's a big one that people have wrestled with for thousands of years. Why is there suffering? The Jewish people, a people that has experienced suffering as no other people group has, often put it this way, why do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? Look at this from Psalm 73. It's a psalm that I, that I look at whenever I'm thinking of the subject of suffering. The psalmist says, My feet almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. This question about suffering was not only on the minds of Jews, it was also on the mind of Gentile believers in Jesus. And in his first letter, to such believers in, in, in Asia Minor, Peter addresses this question head on. In our study of this letter, we come to the end of chapter 4, and once again we see that suffering is the topic at hand. It continues this theme that started all the way in chapter 1. It won't end until we get to the end of chapter 5. Now, just a reminder that, that these are primarily Gentile believers in churches scattered in what is today Turkey. So you see a map up there, and when Peter opens his epistle here, he says that he's writing to those who resides as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so these are the people that Peter's specifically writing this letter to. In this area of the world, which was under the rule of the Roman Empire, they were being persecuted for identifying as Christians, a term that was given to these folks in derision. And the reason is, is because they worship this one who was declared to be Christos, 
the Christ, the Anointed One. Now, I want to do justice to this passage by looking at it in its historical and biblical context. Their suffering was the result of their faith. They were being persecuted as believers in Christ. The most we probably experience, certainly today in the United States, at best is raised eyebrows, or maybe it might be some cutting remarks. For these folks, it was their very lives. They were at risk of death because of what they believed. So let's understand what Peter is saying to those folks in their situation, and then we'll broaden the context just a little bit and, and talk about suffering in general and maybe some things that we can draw from this passage that we can apply even if it's not persecution we're suffering, but it's just difficult times. Peter exhorts these believers with three mindsets followed by an appeal for a decision that they would make. Here are the three. Don't be surprised. Don't think it's strange. And don't be ashamed. So let's go to 1 Peter chapter 4, if you want to grab a seatback Bible in front of you, page 1296. 1 Peter chapter 4. And I'm going to read starting at verse 12. So if you just want to follow along. 1 Peter 4, starting at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Peter says, first of all, don't be surprised at what's happening to you. And he calls these sufferings fiery trials. Those words were used to describe a smelting furnace for refining gold and silver. And, and what Peter's saying is through these trials, the faith of these believers was being refined. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? Jesus himself was very clear what would happen to those who were his followers. Recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 15, Jesus is in the upper room with his 12. And here's what he says to him: If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hates you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Jesus says, listen, no slave is above his master. If this is the way the world treated me, this is the way the world is going to treat you if you identify yourself with me. Now, Peter's already referred to how God uses trials to refine the believer's faith. Look what he said in chapter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, God would not use this suffering to destroy the faith of those who believed in him, but to show that their faith sustains them and stands through it all. This is why we understand when it says in the scriptures that God tests us, tests our faith. It is not for the purpose of us failing. It is the purpose of demonstrating his faithfulness to us. When Ford Motor Company goes out to do testing of their cars, they're not doing it to show that their car is going to fail to meet the specs. They're showing that it does indeed meet the specifications and the requirements. And so that's what God is doing with these trials. Peter goes on to say, don't think it's strange that you're experiencing persecution for your faith. The Apostle Paul warned Timothy, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Have you noticed that you can talk to others about God, about spirituality, about religion, and you will ruffle few, if any, feathers. But if you start talking about Jesus, and his claims and his identity, that's where the sparks fly, doesn't it? People get really upset. Uh, opposition should be no surprise. We shouldn't think it's strange that Jesus divides people. In fact, he said it would. He would. Because his claims are so exclusive, so unique, that it has that purpose. Peter also says that when you're persecuted, you share in Christ's sufferings. I don't quite understand that. Paul talked about the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings when he wrote to the Philippians. Um, but there's something that, that, that when people suffer for Christ for their faith, when they are persecuted, they are identified in a fellowship with the very sufferings of Christ himself. But not only that, Peter says that you share in his joy. And you share in his glory. The writer of the book of Hebrews makes an astounding statement about Jesus. Look at this. He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now get this. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's a head scratcher. Jesus experienced joy in submitting to his Father's will because he knew that after the cross came glory. It required the cross first, but then came glory. And Peter's been trying to get this very thing across to these people that were going through suffering because of their faith. In chapter 3, he put before them the example of Jesus who died in flesh, was made alive in spirit, and then taken into glory. And Peter says, that's your destiny. Whatever you suffer in this lifetime, even to the point of physical death, you know that your ultimate destiny that awaits you is glory. In some respects, it doesn't make it any easier when you're going through the persecution, but it does bring perspective. And it helps you to, again, be reminded of the fact that this world here, this life here, is not ultimate. There's something else coming. And so he exhorts them, don't be ashamed if you suffer because you're a Christian. 
In fact, if God should will that you suffer persecution, you are blessed. Not only that, but the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I mean, those truths should encourage the believer who finds himself or herself in this situation. When you think about it, there are brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. This is where they're living. They need the truth of 1 Peter to help them to withstand and to undergo the persecution that is theirs. Should God somehow, someday allow persecution to come to our country, believers need to go to this letter and find encouragement and inspiration and instruction on how they're to live and how they're to think. Kind of an interesting end of that passage that I read, Peter reminds them that God's judgment will begin with followers of Jesus. Now we know, let me just set the record straight here, we know it's not a judgment for sin. It's not a judgment for salvation. That's the moment you put your trust in Christ, the salvation applies to you. It is now yours. You are now saved. You're now a child of God. But there is a judgment that follows. But we need to step back every once in a while and think about the cost that was there. The precious blood, as Peter says, the costly blood of Christ necessary for our salvation. It caused the Son of God to have to come to earth and to bear our sins. We'll be thinking about that here in just a short amount of time as we approach Advent in preparation for Christmas. But when he's on the cross, Jesus is separated from the Father, first time ever in all of eternity, because the sins of us were put on him, and God pours out his wrath on him. That's what it cost God to be able to redeem us, to forgive us. But he reminds us what a terrible judgment remains for those who reject Christ, who reject the gospel. So think about the judgment and what it costs Jesus just for us to be saved, but for those that reject him, it'll be eternal separation. Well, look at the appeal that Peter now gives to these afflicted believers. It's in chapter 4, verse 19. Peter says, Therefore, that is in light of all that I've just talked about, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. First of all, we see that those suffering persecution are still within the will of God. There's a tendency in difficult times to think, oh, maybe there's something wrong with my faith. But reality is that it's the opposite. Because of your faith, you're going through these times. There's nothing that comes into the believer's life but that God either directs it or allows it. This is the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. It is one of the most important, precious doctrines in all Scripture. Should we suffer for our faith, we know that God is neither ignorant of it nor unmindful of it. And knowing that God knows, it's then reasonable to entrust your souls to this one who loves you so much. The body will eventually perish. One way or other, it's checking out of here. But the soul lives forever. And Peter says, the one to whom you entrust your soul is faithful. He is a faithful God. Paul ends his letter of 1 Thessalonians with this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, faithful as he who calls you, and he will also bring it to pass. 
If we don't have the faithfulness of God to bank on, folks, we are in deep trouble. It's his faithfulness to the promises that he's given us that gives us hope in this life and lets us look forward to our destiny ultimately to come. So as for persecution, because you follow Christ, don't be surprised. Don't don't think it's strange. Don't be ashamed. And keep on entrusting your soul to the faithfulness of God. I think that's what Peter's trying to say in this passage to these believers in difficult times. But I want us to step out of this historical context of the passage a little bit and and think for a moment about suffering in general. Again, most of us, probably all of us, do not know what it means to be persecuted, truly persecuted for our faith at the risk of our lives. But we do know tough times, don't we? Probably every one of us has been there in a tough time. If not, don't worry, it's coming. It'll be there. Um, I think our faith is really challenged when we're experiencing difficulties of any kind. Uh, It really reveals the nature of the faith that we say that we have. Randy Elkhorn writes, A faith that leaves us unprepared for suffering is a false faith that deserves to be lost. If you base your faith on a lack of affliction, your faith lives on the brink of extinction and will fall apart because of a frightening diagnosis or a shattering phone call. Token faith will not survive suffering, nor should it. Believing God exists is not the same as trusting the God who exists. And so we come back to this perplexing question, why is there suffering? I have to confess, I don't have even what begins as a full answer to that question. But I do have some thoughts and perspectives based on what I read in Scripture. Uh, and, you know, there, there are just many possible causes uh, to events and experiences that afflict us deeply in our lives. Let me just suggest a few. One is evil. One of the myths that we need to dispel is that evil doesn't exist. It does. Evil is real. You know, we see it in situations. We see it in people. Where does evil come from? How'd that get started? Well, we don't even have time to begin thinking about that in any detail, but the Bible teaches that God created angels and that among them one arose that challenged God's authority and sought to dethrone the one who had created him. His name was Lucifer, or Satan. He's not equal to God. He's a rebel. But God has allowed him certain latitudes to carry out his uh, devilish deeds and desires. He described by Jesus in this way in the Gospel of John chapter 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That's the modus operandi of the evil one. That's what he wants to do. He's the great enemy of God and God's people. His mission is to distort God's truth. It is to destroy God's work and it is to derail God's purposes. And he's been about that ever since he fell from heaven. Many so-called sophisticated people today dismiss such thoughts as being medieval or mythical. I think C.S. Lewis has a great perspective in the preface 
to his book, The Screwtape Letters. It's a delicious satire about demons. But in there, he writes this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Years ago, there was a great book that came out. It's called, I think it was, it was uh, Piercing the Darkness was the name of the book. But the problem with, with, with some of that is you can take it the wrong way to where now you begin to think that there's a, a, a demon and a devil lurking behind every tree and under every rock and, and that they have all this power. No, they don't. Um, in fact, we need to remember what the Apostle John affirmed in reminding fellow Christians about opposition from the evil one in his spirits. He wrote this, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. Why? For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. If we let that truth slip away from us, we will live in fear of the evil one and his spirits. But we've been given this wonderful truth about the power of God who is within us. But evil does exist. Evil people exist. Evil is real. Another source of suffering has to do with the consequence of sin in our lives. We're born into the human race, bearing the judgment of Adam and Eve's sin, and wrestling with this principle of sin within us. In simple terms, we are fallen people living in a fallen world. And disease and pain and suffering are some of the consequences of living in this world. Henry Nouwen, one of the leading spiritual writers and theologians in the 20th century, wrote, many people suffer because of the false supposition on which they base their lives. That supposition is that there should be no fear or loneliness, no confusion or doubt. But these sufferings can only be dealt with creatively when they're understood as wounds integral to our human condition. So we need to remember we live in a fallen world. The scriptures declare that we are by nature flawed. And our basic orientation is toward ourself. And it usually shows up in self-centeredness. So I do what pleases me regardless of what that might do to others. I look out for myself, number one and only. I say and do things that exalt me, that promote me, and I really don't care how it affects other people. Or I'm on the receiving end of others who are living out the consequences of being a sinner. And we bear the brunt of others' angry words and malicious actions. So we often suffer because of the sins of others. Again, I think this is part of the consequence of being human. If we believe the Bible's teaching that all is sin and fall short of the glory of God, then it should be no surprise that suffering comes because of our sin or the sin of others. Now, I, I have to give you a caution, though, before I go on to the next source, and that's this. All suffering does not come because of sin. There's some well-meaning Christians around who just want to start pointing fingers if things are difficult in your life and they want to go exploring and find the sin that's caused those things. But I'm reminded of Job. Remember that fellow in the Old Testament? You know, uh, one day... The Satan, the devil, was, was appearing before God, and, and, uh, and God brings up the subject of Job. It wasn't Satan at all. Job, uh, God says, have you considered my servants? Job, he's blameless. He trusts me. He's a righteous man. 
And Satan says to God, well, that's only because you treat him so well. You remove your hand of blessing from him, he'll curse you to your face. And God said, okay, I give him into your hand. You may not take his life, but you may do everything else. And of course, his children are all killed. Um, He loses all of his herds and flocks. Everything that he has, his prosperity is now gone. He's a man who is broken because of that. And yet it said he never blamed God. He fell down on his face and he blessed God. And then his friends come along. You see, there was an Old Testament times mentality. It goes back to what we talked about in Psalm 73. If you are righteous, God blesses you. But if you are unrighteous, God will curse you. And so they come to Job and they say, listen, Job, let me figure this out here. You know, if, you, if, you, if you are right with God, good things happen. If you're not, bad things happen. Okay, let's see, bad things are happening to you over here. There's no way you can be good. And that's the mentality, and it was the idea of assigning a blame that everything comes because of sin. Well, here's another source I think we often know, and that's choices. Choices have consequences. One of those consequences is suffering. I think these choices fall into several different categories. One are choices that I make. There are choices that we make that produce suffering in our lives and in the lives of others. You know, it might be the choice that we make of friends, It might be choices that include alcohol or drugs or inappropriate sexual behavior. They're choices that bring adverse consequences into our lives. Then there are choices that others make. Sometimes, unfortunately, we're on the receiving end of other people's choices. And so families suffer the loss of a loved one due to a choice of a drunken driver. A spouse and children suffer the brunt of an alcoholic's choice to drink. So sometimes it's what other people have chosen to do that affects us. And then we have to say that there are no choices. Sometimes things happen to us that seem to have no connection to either our choices or somebody else's choices. Things like suffering from a natural disaster, tornado or hurricane, earthquake, whatever it might be. And last, I feel I have to say that there's, sometimes there's no visible answer for suffering. It falls into the realm of mystery. And often, I don't know about you, that's confusing. That's kind of hard to figure out. But, but we have to be willing to accept that there are some things we will just never understand, at least on this side of the grave. Chuck Swindoll writes, some will say, you've got to understand why you're suffering or you'll never be able to handle it. Let me tell you that half the things that happen in my life, I'll never understand. And there are many things that happen to others that I'll never understand. I think we can agree with that, can't we? In the midst of the confusion, I trust my God to make it all come out right. It is only when we trust in Him that we will be able to find the strength and stability to make it through the stormy struggles. The New Testament in several places call for us to be joyful even in the midst of suffering. Peter says it in his letter. Rejoice. You know, it's one thing to accept the fact of trials, and it's another thing uh, to rejoice in them. That's not easy. In fact, may I suggest to you, and I don't know that I'm far off the mark, it's not something I want to do. But I've been given a choice. 
It's a choice that we make in obedience to God's word. Why? Because we believe there's a sovereign God who understands all the whys even if I do not. And am I willing to trust in him even when I can't see the whys now? Well, Peter in his letter gives three reasons we can rejoice in the midst of trials and suffering. First, he says, trials deepen our fellowship with Christ. Peter says in the passage that we've looked at that we participate or we share in Christ's suffering. The word that he used for participate or share is the same word used for fellowship, koinonia. There's a fellowship that when we walk in the way of Christ, when we rejoice in all things, we're in fellowship with him. Why? Because we know what ultimately lies ahead of us. Second, trials deepen our joy as we prepare for his coming. Peter speaks about being glad when Jesus is revealed in his glory. And maybe it is because suffering can help turn our focus on the temporal to the eternal. You know, we are so wedded, and I don't mean to say that life on this earth is unimportant, insignificant uh, to us or to God, but it is that there's a greater reality that's out there. There's a greater reality that is coming. And I think what it does is it assigns the proper weight to the circumstances of today in light of the glory tomorrow. And we need to be reminded that there's something better coming. In fact, Peter's going to write in the next chapter as he wraps up his letter, and after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. There's one other reason that Peter gives, and that is that trials deepen our reliance on the Holy Spirit. Peter says that the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And as we trust in Christ through suffering, somehow we experience God resting on us. So many people that I've known that come to such a a critical time in their life, I'm thinking of a friend now going through a real scary time of cancer, and yet she is meeting with God as she's never met with God before. There is a focus on what's coming. There's a focus that all this will be left behind, and reality will be what God has declared is true reality. So what are we to do if we're suffering? What are we to do if we're going through a difficult time in life? I would suggest the same three things that we've been talking about all through this letter. Number one, trust God. I mean, that's your choice. You're either going to put your trust in your circumstances or in others or in yourself, or you're going to say, God, this is so beyond me. This is so above my pay grade. This is so much greater than I can ever deal with. I have to trust you and trust you alone. The second thing is do what is right. In other words, keep doing what you know God wants you to do. Keep living in a way that pleases God that he's called you to live. And then last, just keep on keeping on. Keep on keeping on. The theme of this whole book that we're looking at, it is to trust in God, do what is right, and keep on, even in suffering. Well, would you pray with me? Lord, you know each of us intimately here today, and you know our future as you know our past. But I pray particularly today for those who are going through difficult times, who are suffering, whatever it is, if it's physical or emotional or psychological or relational or financial, whatever it might be, 
would you direct people's eyes toward you, toward the Son who loves him and loves them? God, would you be at work in our lives that when times come that are difficult, and they certainly do come, that we might choose to trust in you even when we don't understand the why. We thank you that you do know the why, that you know every why, but give us the desire and the willingness and the courage to trust you even when we can't see it. Would you help us to continue to do what's right, to live as we know we ought to live? And would you give us that perseverance that comes from trusting in you, that we will hang in there knowing that that the ultimate is already determined for us. And so, God, help us to take your word applied to our lives. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.